right. Well, good evening. It is awesome to be with y'all. I'm so grateful for uh, the message that the Lord has for us tonight. If you would turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 4, if you're in the church's Bible on page 766, Ecclesiastes chapter 4. If you were able to read chapter 4 this week, you might notice that it is a little bit different from the first three chapters. Not because Solomon suddenly trades in his tone from dreary to cheerful, but because he, he kind of shifts from this essay-type explanation with a body, and a, excuse me, an introduction, a body, and a conclusion to simply a series of what are depressing realizations without any real recommendation or closure. So um, on this slide here, um, kind of breaks down what we're looking at in chapter 4. And so Solomon begins with an introduction that he talks about all of the oppression that he sees. And so he opens with this and then he he shifts to three things that he realizes and that he sees in the world. He sees the vanity of selfish work, the vanity of isolation, and the vanity of popularity. So this idea of oppression, Solomon is going to unpack through our work, through our loneliness, and through our acceptance by others. So this is pretty much the meaning of life, right? Our work, our relationships, and our need for acceptance. So Solomon says that these things, there is great oppression in them. And so for me, I, I think as depressing as this examination of these things are that we spend our hours toiling over, it is so vital that we learn from him. Because he continues to show us that what we see and what we accept as reality are really a shadow of the truth. So let's read together. We'll read all of chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. Solomon says, Then I returned and considered all the oppression that is done under the sun. And look, the tears of the oppressed but they have no comforter. On the side of their oppressors there is power, but they have no comforter. Therefore I praise the dead who were already dead, more than the living who were still alive. Yet better than both is he who has never existed, who has never seen the evil work that is done under the sun. Again I saw for all the toil and every skillful work a man is envied by his neighbor. This also is vanity, grasping for the wind. The fool folds his hands and consumes his own flesh. Better a handful with quietness than both hands full together with toil and grasping for the wind. Then I returned and saw vanity under the sun. 
There is one alone without companion. He has neither son nor brother, yet there is no end to all his labors, nor in his eye, nor is his eye satisfied with riches. But he never asks, For whom do I toil and deprive myself of good? This also is vanity and a grave misfortune. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, one will lift up his companion. But woe to him who is alone when he falls, for he has no one to help him up. Again, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand them. And a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king, who will be admonished no more. For he who comes out of prison to be king, although he was born poor in his kingdom, I saw all the living who walk under the sun. They were with the second youth who stands in his place. There was no end of all the people over whom he was made king, yet those who come afterward will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and grasping for the wind. So, it's kind of a unique situation, but what Solomon is doing is taking three things that we experience with regularity in our lives and using them to express the oppression that we experience as people and how all of it means nothing. Now think about that reality alone. What we experience is oppression and everything we do is vanity. These first few verses um, Solomon realizes this horrible reality that the world is filled with oppression. Let's just read these first couple of, uh, this first verse, chapter four, verse one. He says, "Then I returned and considered all that all the oppression that is done under the sun, and look, the tears of the oppressed, but they have no comforter." On the side of their oppressors there is power, but they have no comforter. So he sees the tears of the oppressed. Like God saw those suffering in Egypt. He sees the tears of the oppressed. But Solomon says they have no comforter. He says on the side of the oppressors is power. And he repeats it again. He says they have no comforter. He's describing the world that we live in. He's not describing people in some faraway land. He's not describing everyone who lives in a third world country. He is describing humanity. He has this insight the Lord has given him to see that we are under oppression. He says we have no way for comfort. But those that are oppressing us have power. He's putting those two things at odds, comfort and power. He repeats it again that we have no comforter. 
It's important we remember that at the beginning he says that all of this is done under the sun. Under the sun is this metaphor, this understanding of what we would experience in a life without God. So God exists, but if he is not in our lives, then we are under the sun. We are experiencing life no different than anyone else. And a life without God means that there is an oppressor who has power. And we are without comfort. When we fail to realize this, God's work in our life has no value. If you ask yourself, well, how do I keep doing the same thing? Why do I keep going on without God working in my life? Well, we are, we are failing to recognize that there is an oppressor and that he is powerful and that there is nothing for us apart from God. Here in a moment, we'll come back to this idea of comforter, but let's move on for a second. Next, he expresses the serious nature of this oppression. He says in verse 2, Therefore, I praised the dead who were already dead more than the living who are still alive. Now, this is a weird word, praise. It doesn't mean praise like we think of lifting our voices or our hands to the Lord. It, it means that he's saying better off dead than those who are oppressed. It is, okay, let's stop there. Better off dead than to be oppressed. That's an interesting thing to swallow, isn't it? We would think, well, I mean, who wants to be dead? It's better to be oppressed, right? No, he sees the power of oppression over people, and he says it would be better to be dead than be living in the realm of oppression. Then he says, more than the living who are still alive, yet better than both is he who has never existed. He says even better than being dead to escape oppression would be never having existed and known this oppression. Now, he's not advocating that we should not be alive. He's not advocating that we should never have been born. He is saying we should realize what we're dealing with, that this oppression that exists is powerful. On the one side is oppression with power and evil. And on the other side is the oppressed who have tears and have no comforter. Now we live in a great land with many wonderful resources, with many wonderful structures that protect us. So even the worst days that we might have where we might feel what some might call oppressed, tears are few, and there is many a comfort to suffice for what the Spirit longs to give us. The first time I read this, even this opening, I thought Solomon really seems kind of pitiful here. Humdrum, woe is me, life doesn't always work out the way that I want it kind of scenario, but then I began to see that Solomon is being honest with what is a true spiritual reality. It's easy when we're living in a false world to be happy all the time. But if we knew the world we were living in, if we knew the spiritual world that was present, overlaid with what we meander around with in our daily lives, then we would not be so falsely happy. 
Some read this passage and explain oppression as national hunger or wars, even for Solomon's people. There were those that were going hungry. There were wars with other nations. There was a lot going on that could be seen as oppression. But that doesn't quite fit for Solomon, who is the king of Israel at the height of their reign with the greatest of wealth, the greatest of resources, that Solomon would say, woe is me, I see the great oppression in our country, does it? He's not talking uh, about uh, a lack of plenty or prosperity If this was the case, if oppression was situational only, he'd find a fix for it, wouldn't he? He is the great man with all the wisdom, with all the answers, with knowing what to do with a baby that is claimed by two people. But that's not what's going on. I believe that he is recognizing what is spiritual. As as if, in verse 1, he is considering what he sees as spiritual oppression over the entire world. And he's completely overwhelmed by it. I believe that if the Lord was to allow us a glimpse of what is taking place spiritually to people who are outside of God's protection, that we would be overwhelmed. So in a life without God, there is oppression, there is powerful evil forces. He sees that for the oppressed, it would have been better not to have been born. This is heavy duty. So next Solomon gives some examples of of this oppression. He says in verse 4, Again I saw all the toil and every skillful work a man is envied by his neighbor. This is also vanity and grasping for the wind. So Solomon says that essentially any progress that is made, any successful effort, is the result of envy. Now think about the things that you've achieved in your life, and think about if they were influenced by the Spirit of God or the Spirit of man. Solomon would say that all success is a result of envy of our neighbor. This word here for toil, some translations use the word labor, but it is a word with a negative connotation. It is a word that was used in the Garden of Eden when man would have to toil as a result of sin. He says that all toil and every work that achieves success is because of envy. And he says, to make no mistake about it, it is complete vanity. Then he says, the fool holds his hands, and consumes his own flesh. Now this is kind of an awkward statement, but it is a a Hebrew idiom, a Hebrew metaphor that means that those who are jealous of the success of others just decide to do nothing. They decide to sit with their hands folded because if you can't beat someone, why do anything at all? It describes those who are careless and idle and essentially they dig their own grave. So Solomon and all his physical wisdom advocates for a third alternative. In verse 6 he says, Better a handful with quietness than both hands full, together with toil and grasping for the wind. So instead he suggests that it's better to be quiet and have just enough than to grasp for any further success. Sounds about right, doesn't it? 
Three options that are all vanity. Then he goes on to to talk about isolation. And so in each of these situations, he's imagining a certain situation for us to glean from. So he imagines a person alone without a companion, neither a son nor a brother. So this man works hard and wants more and more, but realizes what reason I have no one to share it with and no one to leave it to. Solomon says, this is vanity. He says in verse verse 7, Then I returned and I saw vanity under the sun. There is one alone without companion. He has neither son nor brother. There is no end to all his labors, nor is his eye satisfied with riches. But he never asks, For whom do I toil and deprive myself of good? This also is vanity and a grave misfortune. So from here, Solomon describes why a companion is beneficial. And the next few verses are really the only ones that don't, on the surface, seem negative necessarily. He says two is better than one. Better return on their labor. If one falls down, the other can pick them up. Falling while alone is bad. A companion can help keep someone warm. Two can withstand better than one. Now, many quote from these verses, right? Two are always better than one. A better reward for your labor, right? That sounds almost right, doesn't it? While he doesn't conclude this statement, this section with a statement on vanity, I want to share with you that these statements are being made by a person living under the sun. These statements are being made according to the flesh and not the spirit. They're not spiritual statements. But hear these things and how spiritual they sound and how easy it is to put them on a shirt at youth camp. Two are better than one because they have a better reward for their labor. For if they fall, one will lift up his companion, but woe to him who is alone when he falls, for he has no one to help him up. For if two lie down together, they will keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? Though he may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him. And a threefold cord is not quickly broken. See, but each of these statements are speaking physically and not spiritually. I think even still what Solomon is missing is that wisdom means nothing without the Spirit of God. Think about this. These truisms being applied spiritually by those in the church often like two being better than one and a threefold cord not easily broken but outside the spirit three these alone are vanity in fact the opposite statement could be made that two or three in the flesh is far inferior to one in the spirit there is strength in numbers but we should long for spiritual strength, not physical. The final section, Solomon talks about popularity, sort of. He, he begins by offering this proverb that it's better to be poor and wise to be old, foolish, and have great wealth and status. See, those are kind of antonyms. Those are statements that seem at odds. It's, he's saying it's better to be poor, 
without wealth and wise and young. Youth is not um, anything to boast about, most would say. It's better to be those things than an old person who has had wisdom but is stuck in their ways and refuses to receive new wisdom. So then he's going to describe for us this youth, this young person who comes out of prison to become king. Let's read this. Let's just read 14 through 16. He says, for he comes out of prison to be king, although he was born poor in his kingdom. I saw all the living who walk under the sun. They were with the second youth who stands in his place. There was no end to all the people over whom he was made king. So let's pause there for a second because there's a lot in this. So he says, there is this youth who comes out of prison to become king. So two things that are working against this youth, he is youthful, he is young, he's inexperienced, and he's in prison. And he comes out of prison to be made king. It says there is no end to the number of people he's over. So it's imagining somebody who is over everything. Yet, those who come after him will not rejoice in him. So even though he's over everyone, no one really respects him. Nobody really cares that he has done great things, that he has come out of prison as a young person. He has achieved greatness as a king. He will now really be to them like the old man who is full of wisdom and good for nothing. The point in, in, in these, these stories is to say that all of it, whether we are great and wise and full of wealth, or we are weak and inferior and poor, all of it's nothing. Popularity fades. People's opinions and use for us fade. All is vanity and grasping for the wind. So Solomon's introduction is that he sees all the oppression in existence. And his conclusion is one without a solution. That all is vanity. What I have seen all week is that spiritually this oppression that we're reading about are, of course, spirits. Right? We live in a world of oppression. Is it oppression because we don't get what we want, because there's not a food, enough food for everyone in the world, that uh, some people are treated poorly and some people are treated well? Or is it that there is a spiritual dimension that we live in and that there is an oppression overall who haven't been delivered evil spirits unclean spirits they are the same and the scenarios that solomon is describing is with all too simple wisdom these scenarios are the manifestation of spirits in our lives see everyone we read about is in a spirit of some sort the lord has been talking to me this week about personalities and personality types are a physical reflection of a spiritual reality so one could read this chapter and interpret Solomon as explaining how different personalities function some are this way and some are that way and as a result of people being different there is going to be difficult times in the lives of many So 
maybe you've taken a personality test, and you don't have to answer this question. Maybe you have taken a test on social media to find out what kind of dog you most, most likely resemble with your demeanor. Or you've taken a test for a job or for school or for some other purpose. Personality tests have become an addiction in our culture. For people to determine what makes them tick, what strengths do they have, what weaknesses do they have, and how can those be packaged to sound really awesome. In fact, churches have begun to rely heavily on personality assessments, and these are coupled with churchy words that sound spiritual, and they use these things to identify ministry qualities and the potential for pastoral ministry. You don't have to do much research on personality tests like Myers-Briggs or Enneagram to learn that their roots are in astrology and the occult. It's not hard. They put psychology and other layers on them to make them sound really secure and legitimate and drawing on years and years and years of research and evaluation and other things, but at their root, they rely on the same basic principles. That we were made a certain way and we can't change who we are. In fact, these things make us unique and different, and that's a good thing. It's become popular to identify yourself based upon numbers and letters of your so-called personality, and it even seems logical or maybe professional that we would want to know about somebody's personality before hiring them, before becoming a friend to them, or even working on a project with them. But here's the danger in these personality assessments. They're witchcraft. A series of crafted questions with certain psychological criteria to assume and manipulate a given personality. They are to witchcraft as tarot cards and zodiac signs. And beyond this, these inventories, some might say, these assessments, they focus on a person's personality with strengths and weaknesses. This allows a person to feel good about their strengths, which is pride, and to excuse their spiritual sin as merely weaknesses. The approach to interaction and living has infiltrated not just worldviews and culture, it, is, it has infiltrated the church. We have become a people to accept personalities and therefore sin instead of recognizing spirits and dealing with sin. So with this understanding in mind, as I, as I, I read this chapter again afresh, anew, I see several spirits. In verses 4 through 6, we read about toil and skillful work that is envied by one's neighbor. This is selfishness. This is pride. We read about one who would just assume fold his hands instead of work because if you can't beat him, why not just be lazy? Solomon's uh, really answer to these things is instead of being in pride, in greed, 
let's not be lazy either. Let's instead be passive and let what happens happens better one handful than two hands with strife. Solomon says to these things in verse 7, though, they are, excuse me, verse 6, vanity. In verse 8, he says, there is one alone without compassion companion he has neither son nor brother there is no end to all his labors nor is his eye satisfied with riches but he never asks for whom do I toil and deprive myself of good this is greed verses 9 through 12 that talk about the importance of not being alone but being with somebody don't seem to include statements about vanity but this this section may seem neutral But I think something that we should consider is that unspirit-led friends don't mean much. See, it seems that two should be better than one, that we should constantly be filling our lives with other people to counsel and advise us. But if we are being counseled and advised by those who aren't spirit-led, this can be equally detrimental. And we can develop an unhealthy dependence on friends. See, when we're depending on friends alone, we are not depending on God alone. But friends that are spirit-led and the company of the spirit will lead us to truth. 13 through 16, we read about these, this young man and this old man, and we see knowledge and pride, and ultimately this old man who has a hardened heart and refuses to accept new understanding. All of these situations, Solomon says in 16, surely also this is vanity and grasping for the wind. So Solomon looks out over all his kingdom and he sees the oppression that exists. But here's what we know about Solomon. Each chapter he is presented with a new choice to make. It's one thing to see our oppression, it's another to want out of it. As we read in verse 1, we read twice, let's go back to verse 1, we read twice that they have no comforter. And again, they have no comforter. We're told that those who are in oppression have no comforter. Now this, this should be a sad reality if we didn't know the end of the story, if we didn't know that spiritually there is a comforter. To a degree, this statement is is true because God does not comfort sin. I think out of a chapter like this, it is easy to come to a heresy like that, that God comforts those in sin. But God doesn't. He laments sin. This word here that we read for comforter is a word that we studied a couple weeks ago in Amos. You remember we were talking about how um, does God um, does God admit that he is sorry for having done something? Did God lament what happened to Saul? Yes, God lamented, but God did not repent for himself and say he's sorry for allowing what happened to happen. Likewise, God does not if we, we have to understand this word in, in the context that this word can mean regret or lament or to be sorry, to console oneself, to comfort. So for those remaining under the sun, there is no comfort for our spiritual condition. One that encourages us and says that it'll be all right. 
It's why Solomon says that all of this is vanity and grasping for the wind. However, we serve a holy God who does lament the existence of sin and its spiritual destruction in our lives. It's why we as believers are not to accept our personalities, our spirits. They may be who we are, but they are not who God desires us to be. Our personality is a spiritual reflection. It is either a reflection of evil or of good. We're told in Romans chapter 8, For for they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, but it is not subject to the law of God. Neither indeed can it be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God, but you who are not in the flesh but in the spirit, if so, be the spirit of God that dwells in you. Now if any man have not the spirit of Christ, he is none of this. This week I have seen greater and greater what Solomon writes about in this oppression. Things that seem not working out well, things that seem like merely a bad behavior or a bad attitude, these things are spiritual. And we must open our spiritual eyes to be delivered from evil in our lives. I pray it would be so for us. Amen.